Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. All right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We are uh, pumped that you are here this morning. Thanks for watching online. For those of you watching online, or most likely on replay because you were traveling and doing your thing. Uh, just a quick heads up. There's been a play in the theater all week. Mid-Columbia Musical Theater has been using... Uh, our, our theater for a production, a spelling bee production. Uh, and as a result, we're kind of making use of the stage and everything. So don't, don't think that I built this to like feel better than you or more, you know, like I'm, I'm higher than you now. It does feel like that, I know, but um, that was not intentional. We're just uh, making it work. But thanks for being here and not camping this weekend. We're, we're pumped about it. We're finishing off uh, a series today um, uh, that we kicked off a few weeks ago. Um, that uh, we, we did it because I came across some numbers that if it was your industry uh, and it was the thing that you worked in, it might make you a little bit nervous uh, about it, but, uh, and it would probably be cause for concern. Uh, but the numbers came from a Gallup poll. Gallup does a bunch of different kind of polling things. And if you've been here for the first two weeks, I'm sorry, I'll try and go through this as fast as I can, this little poll part, because you've seen these numbers already. Uh, but they do polls on politics, they do polls on economics and, and all kinds of different things. And they do one on religion that's kind of uh, highly esteemed or whatever. And the numbers that came out recently Recently, we're kind of a little cause for concern when they asked uh, questions. I think we've got a few of the questions on there. Brandon, are we good to go? Um, the question, basically, number one was this, how important would you say religion is in your, in your own life? Very important, fairly important, not very important. And 49% of Americans uh, in 2021 said very important. So uh, according, according to this status, 50% of you, uh, and probably not you because you're here so that you would skew the, the, the thing, but the people that you shopped at Walmart with uh, yesterday at Costco uh, on Friday or whatever, 50% of people said, yeah, it's very important to me. And 27% said uh, fairly important, which those are pretty good numbers. Like, like you add those two things together, you're looking at about 76% of people say that religion is important or fairly important to them. That's, that's a lot. That should, be, that should be good. Except that when you look at like the, the numbers from where they were to where they, you know, where they have been to where they are currently, you can kind of see in, in the 10-year span, it's been slowly kind of uh, dripping down and doing that. And then, and then another question was simply this. If it's that important to you, how often do you attend church or synagogue every week, almost every week, about once a month, seldom or never? Uh, 22% every week and, and you know, that kind of, but again, the numbers, the decline of number, and then this one's just a bogus. Everybody said 24% showed up in 2020. That's, a, that's just outright bold-faced lie, but, uh, you know, you were at home with COVID, but uh, every, you know, everything else is kind of like, uh, even still, like, you can find your place in the numbers, but you can kind of see a steady decline in these things. Uh, the, the next one uh, was simply a, a question of, uh, uh, go to the next one there. I can't remember the, there we go. At the present time, do you think religion as a whole is influencing, uh, increasing its influence on American life? or losing its influence. Uh, and 21% said, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Christianity continues to have uh, an influence on American life. Uh, and 78% said, no, I think it's probably declining in the last one. And then the last question was simply a very, very simple one. Do you believe in God, right? And we're not even gonna break it down into like this religion's God or that religion's God. Just in general, do you believe in sort of higher deity, organized, whatever, um, some sort of a concept of that. 81% of Americans said they did, which sounds like a pretty high number. That sounds like, wow, that's maybe higher than, than you thought. Um, uh, but you live in the Pacific Northwest, so that's probably skewed in the other way. But um, 81% of Americans said, yeah, I believe in God and, and I won't even attempt to define it beyond that. And yet that number again reflects a 10 year decline from where it was asked in 2000. 
uh, 11. Uh, We're slowly seeing the numbers fade away. And if you're in a business where you're like, this is our market share, this is what we do, it'd be cause for concern. Last week we said, um, you know, think about owning a rental, movie rental in market uh, or business in uh, in like 2006, right? Um, You're high on life. And then all of a sudden you're kind of seeing the numbers begin to slowly come in and you're going, we either have to change course or change you know, directions or shut this thing down or you know, run the last blockbuster in the country in Bend, Oregon or something like that. Like we have very few options uh, for what we're gonna do uh, when it comes to, to this sort of things. Um, and so when the numbers, and we said this, when the numbers are telling a story, at what point are you brave enough to see it? I don't know if you've ever run your own business and you've had to do numbers or polling things or you've seen kind of, you know, the monthly num- revenue numbers start coming in and, and you're, you're sitting there going, ah, it's just a bad month. Oh, it's just a bad quarter. It's just a bad year, whatever. It'll be fine. Or even coming out of 2020, how many people, oh, it's just a weird, we'll just throw that into the COVID stuff, right? We'll just throw that into, doesn't count, it's COVID. Um, and yet, at what point are you brave enough to see something and go, um, hey, I think something's wrong here. Something's going, going in, in a different direction. So I wanted to be, I wanted to work through this with all, all of you and say, okay, these are where the directions are headed. Is this cause for concern for us? And I said, I don't, I don't know that it's quite that. I mean, for us, we, we, we have said, we're gonna try and be a church for people who don't typically like church. This is increasing our market share. Like there's more people out there in our target audience uh, than there were 10 years ago, which is great. A grouping question that we said we need to navigate and deal with uh, shows up by a guy named Charles Taylor who asked this question, why is it that it is virtually impossible not to believe in God in say 1500? Back in 1500, if people said, I don't, I don't believe in God, I'm a complete atheist, people would be like, I don't even understand the, con- like, what, what are you talking about? They don't even understand the, the question, the framing of it. Uh, in our Western society, well, in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but often uh, and even inescapable. Why is it even inescapable in, in, in the year uh, 2000, was, which is when he wrote this book, to say, it's not only is it, is it like an option anymore, it's almost like for some of us, we can't get rid of it. We can't shake this idea. I, I don't know how I could go back into needing to believe in a God. Everything I know, he would say, is, is right here. I, I live in this imminent frame. I live in this tangible, everything that makes me happy is physical, it's material, it's tangible. I can buy it, it's for sale, it's for purchase. Um, or if it's not for purchase, if it's like, you know, friendships and people and stuff, like money helps with that, or, or I can see it, I, I can measure it, I can, I can touch it, I can feel it, I can, I don't know, I don't need this level of transcendence. I don't need to live in a, in a, in a worldview where I need something beyond what I can see to help bring me fulfillment in life. Um, I just need more time or more money or, or more time to get more money and then, and then I'll be fine and then I'll be good to go. So we, we live in a less porous, meaning there's less access to the transcendent than ever before. And therefore, this is why now we live in the society that doesn't, which lends us this question, who needs God anymore? Apparently, according to some of these, you know, people are waking up to this reality. People are, they, they would never maybe even put it into those words, but practically as it lays out and as, it, as they get asked these questions, do you believe in God? Less and less are saying so, probably because of this sort of thing. So um, the decline of the video retail market that we said last week, we, uh, talked about the way that we access stories that entertain, amaze, and inspire us has changed, right? If you're reading those numbers back then, watching the numbers come in of going, there's less and less people coming into our store to do this. They're either going to Redbox or they're going to Netflix. It wasn't because they didn't need movies anymore or didn't need movies to help them transcend or stories to engage in. It just meant that the access changed for them. Our need for them remained strong, but the access to them became uh, less expensive 
and more convenient. And so the industry completely changed the result of it. So perhaps, perhaps in that scenario, a decline doesn't really tell the whole story. And perhaps in our scenario, the same thing rings true. Perhaps a decline isn't necessarily telling the whole story because if you were a blockbuster uh, CEO reading through these things, and if you looked at the numbers of, of how things went from like 2006 to 2008, you, if you walked away from a, a meeting or led a staff meeting where you said, hey, everybody who you know, makes money here and does this and is you know, the brains of this organization, listen, people just aren't into movies anymore right? They would all look at you and be like, they would laugh at you because that's not true. It's just the way that they get there is a little bit different. For you to, to, to say people must not be into movies is to misinterpret the data, is to not really see behind what's actually happening in this. To see some of this and be like, well, people must not be into God anymore, I think is to kind of misinterpret the data. And I wanted to do a series to kind of uh, uh, address some of that. So and then the questions that come as a result of this is, what is the underlying need behind these numbers? If these are the four data points that we have to kind of work off of, what is the underlying need that's happening behind this? And then number two, how is the landscape changing for realizing that need? And we, we said in, in week one of this series, the answer to number one of what's the underlying need behind this is, uh, uh, is that we, we, we live in this society, we, we are, are desperate, we really are um, in, in a spot where we need to encounter a God who is God. We're like we... we um, we, we live in such a, uh, a flattened society that for us to experience a, a moment of transcendence, we, we said in week one, man, how, do we even create space for transcendence anymore? What would happen if we ran into or, or, or butt up against you or, or he butted into us, a God who is God? How would that change some things for us? Are, are we less impressed with the idea of God because it just, you know, it's just books and it's just Bible and it's just, it, we come together. Or if we actually met something or, or, or ran into something that we couldn't explain, the unexplainable or this idea of something beyond what we're doing. Like we want something to be more than just this, don't we? We want something to be more than just what you're going through, just another week, another job, another summer, another, another thing. We, like, we would be engaged in that. With the, with, what we said was what we need is an encounter with a God who actually is God. And the problem remains that he, she, it, whatever it is, remains difficult to pin down. And that remains true throughout scripture. What we see, what we have in the Bible is encounters with God who shows up and keeps showing up uh, into, keeps intermixing himself into the story of humanity. In the Old Testament through the person or through the, the nation of Israel saying him showing up in various different forms. And when Moses asks, who are you and what should I tell people you are? Or what name should I associate? If I'm gonna go and be this deliverer of these people out of this slavery in Egypt into this, can we figure out a way to define you? What would you say your name is? And God refuses to be pinned down. And he says, I am I, the I am. Like I am whatever it is that I am. I cannot give you words to describe myself to you. I will be what I will be. My actions speak louder than my words. Base, judge me on your actions, not, not the words. I can't even like speak to you about this. And what do you do with the God who operates like that? So, so in, in essence, we said, all right, what do these numbers tell us? These numbers tell us that we need to experience a, a real encounter with God. The problem is that God remains kind of unexplainable. He, he remains distant. He remains outside of the boundaries of our knowledge. He remains uh, different than what we could say, well, it's definitely this, this. And maybe the church you grew up in had the perfect picture of God. They knew exactly who he was and how he operated. And that's cool. But I just, that, that feels like not the kind of God that I would want, the one that I fully understand. You know what I mean? 
Um, I think that God's bigger than that. And he remains that. And he shows up in scripture as that. And, and even through the person of Jesus is gonna do the same thing as we'll see in, in, in a few minutes. But um, therefore, okay, now we're in this spot where we, we know we need an encounter with God. The problem is it's hard to pin down, hard to understand exactly what he is. I mean, we have some sort of a re- revelation. Uh, this is called the uh, uh, special revelation. A, a, a lot of times like he shows up here. Okay, that's great. Um, uh, and then natural revelation. We go out and we see the wonder of the creation and be like, God's clearly here. Uh, and yet, how do, we, you know, how do we put it into firmer words? How do we know exactly what this is? Now, here, here's the, the thing that I left you with last week. I said this, the church is in a position to witness to the world that the strange God of the Bible still indeed acts, that he still breaks through the barrier. That even though we are maybe less and less likely to kind of uh, see it or, or um, uh, have it, what we, what we show, what we see is him breaking through the barrier of humanity, showing up in the nation of Israel and showing up in the person of Jesus. And I think in a different way, I think the means have changed, but I think the truth still remains. I think to interpret the numbers and say, oh, he's not acting anymore. It's over. It's whatever it's done with is to miss the data that I think the church is in a unique position to say, not nah, he still shows up in creation. He still interacts. He still breaks through the barrier and that this is what the church is for. So Here's what I wanna do for a couple of minutes. I wanna attempt to defend this statement as we kind of conclude this series uh, and go this route. The early church, uh, and and we're gonna get in the weeds for just a second. You remember how I told you, I think in the last series, um, I like want to like warn you when we're about to go a little bit deep, kind of like you warn your kids, you're about to go through a tunnel, hold your breath, and then you get out and then you're like, oh, here we go, we made it, we did good, all right? Hold your breath, it's gonna be a little bit of a tunnel for a second, but I swear there's gonna be like a little pull away and, and we're gonna understand at the end, but all right. The early church, and by early church, I mean like the third, fourth century sort of thing. They were trying to, they had a problem. They were trying to make sense of who Jesus was, right? So you've got Jesus who comes and he leaves and he leaves behind his disciples. They begin to start the church. It begins to expand, but there's no control. There's no, there's not denominations. There's not even buildings. They're like, and there, and there was no Bible. There was no Bible, te biblia for 400 years. So literally there's just a bunch of people getting together, sharing a meal together, talking about the Jesus story and the way of, that he would do life. And and then doing life together. That is what the early church looked like, all right? And so they're, they're trying to navigate this and be like, all right, what does this mean though? What does Jesus, if Jesus was the son of God, as, as everybody is kind of saying he is, what does that mean? How does that translate for us? Because what they had, a lot of them, a lot of the early converts were Jewish converts. So what the Jewish people had were the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the old, we know it as the Old Testament. This is what they had. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, God shows up in a certain way, specifically started with Abraham and then makes them into this mighty nation. And one of the big things about this unique God for the book of Israel and, and in the Old Testament is called is his monotheistic nature. He is the one God. Whereas many of the nations had many, many, many gods, polytheism. They were like, no, there is one God. And they built their thing on it. It was innovative for them. Most people at that time had many gods because why not? Like, let's make sure we have a God for sun and we have a God for rain because we kind of need both at different times. And so we'll pray to one at one time and pray to one at the other. And then Judaism shows up on the scene and says, one God who oversees, who is in charge of all. In fact, those ones don't even exist. But here's this monotheistic take on it, which was innovative, new thing on the scene. Nobody really had ever done this before. What we see in world history is that Judaism was the first expression of monotheism in its place, right? And then what they have, so that they're, they're hardcore into this. They're like monotheism, monotheism. This is what defined us. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and has language that starts talking about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one has full access to the father except through me. 
And then after he dies, people are like, Jesus, we think that there was something different about him. We think he was God. How do you balance a hardcore expression of we're, we are built on the idea of one God and then Jesus shows up on the scene and this is the spirit of the father is in the son. He sent me, you know, we know each other. Like he begins to equate himself with God. They're like, you're dragging us back into this like multiple God systems and we don't wanna go back there. We've been built on monotheism. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with this person of Jesus? And he began, and Jesus too always kind of spoke with like all kinds of ambiguity when it came to this topic because people constantly asked him the question, so who are you really? Like you, you're doing all these miracles. You, you, you obviously have uh, favor. Like there's, there's a bunch of people that follow you. You seem to be pretty smart. You seem to handle confrontation really well and really put people in their place. Who are you? And he continues to speak with the same ambiguity that you employ when your six-year-old asks you where babies come from, right? You're like, well, like mom and tummies. And you know, you're, you're trying to navigate this carefully because you don't want to send this kid to counseling at 10 years old, right? So in the same way, Jesus would, would kind of take and field these questions, give them hints towards this, but not really at those moments begin to say, I'm, I'm God and in a way that you're gonna kind of understand it. You're not gonna understand it. So let me just say this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and no one comes, has access to the Father other than me. Here's one specific example that I wanted to bring to our attention, work through as we kind of see this in play so that you know what I'm talking about here. All right, in John chapter 10, remember John was one of Jesus' apostles who, um, uh, was not one of the ones who was martyred for his faith. He ended up dying as an old man um, who had long probably held a pastorship or led a church for a long time. And at the very end of his life, even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke had probably already been written uh, and were already in circulation, John says, I have a unique story to tell. I wanna tell my side of the version, my, my side of it, which is why, and it was written much later than the other three, which is why it resembles Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but really stands apart as kind of a more personal take on this. I was here firsthand. Luke was not with Jesus. Luke got his information from Peter. So it's secondhand information. I was there. I remember the emotions involved. And let me tell you about the person that I knew is Jesus, who called me the disciple that Jesus loved. Like imagine being one of the 12, but like having the distinction of being like, but he's Jesus' favorite, right? I mean, like that's a big calling. That's a big responsibility. That's what we get with the person of John as he writes chapter 10. Here's what he says. They were celebrating Hanukkah just then in Jerusalem. He's recapping a story for us, right? We're jumping in a little bit halfway, but it was winter and Jesus was strolling in the temple across Solomon's porch, which is an area of the temple outside. It was kind of like a market area. This is where Gentiles and Jews could come and men and women could mix and mingle. And this was a very popular area. The Jews circling him said, how long are you gonna keep us guessing? If you're the Messiah, tell us straight out. Not if you're God. At this point, their framework for this was they lived with anticipation. The Old Testament ends with the anticipation of someone who would come who would finally solve all of our problems. We continue to be a people who are called out by God to be a mighty nation, except that we're constantly under surveillance from an enemy nation who's actually in charge over us. Like we've never actually been free, but we pride ourselves on a God who makes us free, right? Um, and, and so our way to kind of justify this is to say we're anticipating a Christos, a Messiah, a Christ, a Messiah figure who's gonna come and finally get rid of all the Romans and all of the, any, any other people who might uh, associate with us and cause us to be under their influence. So 
is that you? I mean, we figured he'd be a little bit more violent, a little bit more buff, a little bit, a bit more like your pastor probably in this way to be like, are, are you somebody like, if you, if, you know, there's people who walk in, you're like, that guy's in charge. They looked at Jesus and go, I don't know if he's in charge. Like he didn't have the persona that we think would, that somebody like this would have. So constantly they're going, what are you? You keep being amb- ambiguous towards this language. And yet there, there are certainly signs that we cannot deny um, but we just start trying to figure out the category to put you in. What category should we put you in? That's essentially what they're asking. Are, and, 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 then, and then they're giving them a chance to just come out and say it. So are you this or are you not? Just tell us so that we know. Tell us straight out. Jesus answered, I told you, but you don't believe. Everything I've done has been authorized by my father. Actions that speak louder than words. And by the way, even him saying my father, using that pronoun for that sort of thing would have been an outrageous sort of thing to do, right? Um, They they did not pray like that. They did not talk like that. God was a a symbol of reverence. Um, You did not call God your father. He was Yahweh God. He was, when you wrote it out, you threw away the pen after you wrote his name out of sacred reverence for this. That pen will never longer be used because we don't want to... make uh, like dis, disembellish or whatever the name of God, right? So this is a big deal. So even the fact that he's going with this and kind of equating himself in this language, again, hints and hints and hints, but not quite getting there. Everything I do has been authorized by my father. Actions that speak louder than words. Again, tying in this idea of a God who shows up in Moses says, my, my actions will speak louder than my words. I will be what I will be. He's just carrying on this tradition in this way. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep recognize my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give uh, them real and eternal life. They're protected from the destroyer for good. No one can steal them from out of my hand. The father who put them under my care is so much greater than the destroyer and the thief. No one could ever get them away from him. He's, he's trying to say, you're, you're not in, you don't, you're not um, with, you don't understand me because you're, you're just not with me. Like it's not, you're not really grasping the concept of this. And then he goes on and this is uh, a big, this is the big one. This is the big underline. This should be underlined in your Bible home or whatever. I and the father are one heart and mind. And this is what turns the table for them. Because at this point, he's not saying I've been sent by the father. I'm uh, authorized to do the work of the father. Uh, He rubber stamps all of these things. He's trying to say this, I and the father are one heart and one mind. It's that last line that gets him into trouble. And verse 31 says this, again, the Jews picked up rocks to throw at him. Now, imagine having said something to people around you that would cause them to pick up rocks to stone you and kill you. You would never say any of those words again, would you? Like, I don't know about you, but I would figure out, what did I say to offend you? Like, I've, I've said some pretty mean things to people and nobody's ever tried to kill me for it, right? That I know of, maybe, who knows? And for sure, if they had tried to kill me one time, I would then take an evaluation of my life and never say those words or anything close to those words again. And yet here Jesus is again saying, again, they picked up rocks to be able to throw at him and kill him. And and he just refuses to walk away from this sort of thing. 
John is dealing with and writing this story, remembering the emotions involved in that day, remembering the faces of the men and women who were around watching him, hearing him at, the, at that moment equate himself to God, the heavenly father, the Yahweh God that's so sacred, we can't even go into his holy of holies to worship him except for the high priest on one day a year. And if anybody else goes in, they die. And we always, we got the sacrificial system and it's all set up for reverence, 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 reverence. And then this random dude comes in and says, I and the father think the same way. We're on the same page. He sent me, we're like, I'm equating myself in this way. Like, how do you do that? What kind of an, like, even, even today, if you came up to me uh, or, or if in a, somebody in a position like me says, don't worry, God and I are on the same page. He thinks like I do. I think like, like he does. You'd be like, you should go to a different church. You, should, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't listen to me. You, you should find something different. Anybody that, if you came up to me afterwards, you know what I would do after a conversation with you? I would find somebody on our security team and I would say, keep an eye on that guy if you would. Just make sure he doesn't go into any of our kids' areas, that kind of thing. I would be so nervous about it because that's just not natural thinking. So, so here's, here's what John is realizing and the early church well, so John writes it because it happened, because he saw it and was witness to it and remembered the emotions involved. And then a couple of hundred years later, there are people saying, what do we do with this part of what Jesus said? Like there's a lot of times, it's not hard for us to include Jesus feeding the 5,000. Everybody gets behind that. Regardless of how you vote Republican or Democrat, that's a pretty cool thing. That'd be nice to get on our team, right? There, there, there's not a lot of divisiveness involved in that piece of it. Um, but then the early church is looking at this going, what do we do with this sort of language? How do we navigate the monotheistic God of the Old Testament married with this person of Jesus showing up and then making these claims? Um, and and if, we say he's, if we say he's God incarnate, then, then does, that completely, uh, does that completely wipe away everything that was said in the Old Testament? And what do we do about the times where he says, I did not come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it and make it you know, new and, and renew it? Um, how, do we, how do we balance these two things? And so they came up with this idea. Instead of like equating himself to God, who would ever do that? Uh, unless of course they would say, unless you actually are God. So how do, we, how do we talk about him as God and yet maintain the monotheistic nature of the Old Testament and God as God and the reverence that we wanna establish with, with all of this. And then this person who we know existed, we saw him, there's a fullness of humanity. We, we, we were alive or some of us, uh, like we're not too far distant at this point when they were kind of working these, through these things. We're not too far distant away from uh, eyewitness people who knew that Jesus actually lived and saw some of these things. And what we believe about the eyewitness accounts is that they, it actually happened. So they're dealing, which maybe that might be subjective to you and that's fine. I'll, I'll give you permission to kind of be like, I'm still figuring this thing out, that's fine. But what they were working on was we think these things actually happen. We think that Jesus actually existed and these things take place. And yet we wanna hold in high, a high reverence for God. How do we marry these two things together? So they came up with a creative thing that you might think is like creative mental gymnastics. Oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. But if you've ever heard the, word, the, the term Trinity being used in a church uh, and using its religious sense and never found it in the Bible, um, that's because it's not in the Bible. And here's the history behind it. This is exactly what, this is how this word came about. It's because people are going, what do we do with John chapter 10, verse 31? Uh, and, and then what we know about God. The Cappadocian fathers in the fourth century came up with an updated theory on a word called hypostasis. Now there's gonna be a quiz a little later. I want to make sure that you understand. No, I'm just kidding, no quizzes. 
hypostasis, which basically means being or the existence of being, that everything has a hypostasis. Everything has a reason for being or an existence in its way. There exists though, uh, different levels of being for them. They would say this. Now, everybody knows that a rock exists because rocks just plainly exist. So the hypostasis of a rock is that it's physical, it's tangible. I meant to bring up a rock right here and just set it right here and show you and be like, what is this? And everybody would say, this is a rock. Everybody understands this being that exists. I don't have to like explain it to you. You just know it, right? A rock just is. It doesn't need anything else to exist. And they would say this, but what about a kiss? Is a kiss a thing? We know a rock is a thing, but is a kiss a thing? The difference between a rock and a kiss. A kiss is something. If I said, what's a kiss? Every one of you would have an idea in your mind about what a kiss is. I'm not like, I'm, I'm like making up a word that you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. What, what, do, you, what do you mean, man? Uh, we know what it is. A kiss is something, but it's not, like it doesn't exist. It needs something outside of itself to exist. We know it exists. We would say it exists, but it does need something. It's a result of an action within a relationship that you can't subtract persons from the equation and still imagine a kiss. The only way you can imagine a kiss is with the existence of something else, all right? I know this is getting a little philosophical. You're still holding your breath. The tunnel's there, but we're coming towards the light, I promise, okay? So, because you know, some of you are like, it's 10 a.m., Brent. Like, this is cruel and unusual punishment. I will try and keep this simple and usable for you. They said this. What is, that, what is Jesus's nature? It is both fully human, we know this. It is both uh, human nature, but it is also divine. He's the perfect chef's kiss of both of these two things. He exists because both of them exist. And if you try and point to one, you can't point to the other. And he exists within this Trinity. And they all, what is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? It's, it's a being, but it's also different levels of being. In the same way that a rock exists, but a, a kiss also exists on a different way. It's a way of differently expressing this. So is God one? Yes, he is one God with three different persons. I know it's deep, it's hard, it's, <coughs> excuse me, it's rough. But that was their way of making sense of Jesus. That was the mental gymnastics they used to go. He was both fully God, <coughs> fully divine and fully human in this way. He married those two things together. And to pinpoint one, to say he was fully human, but not fully God doesn't work. Anyways, what does this mean for us, right? This is where we come out of the tunnel. This is what he would say. This is what they would say. As a result of this, we too are hypostatic. We exist not just as simple human beings, things that simply exist. Are we simply a rock? If I was to stand up here and be like, do I exist? You would say, yes, you exist. You're right there, right? I exist. That's true, but it's, it's different than that. It's also, we're not just rocks. We have our being in and through encounters and connections with other people. We are persons who have our personhood in and through relationships that are outside of us and that nevertheless make us, that we exist physically, but there's also something about us that exists because of the people around us that we're connected to that make us. Some of you know me only as Kylie's husband or Grayson's dad. Well, probably not many. You show up on Sunday mornings. But there are people, when I show up at my, my kids' school, I'm not Brent the pastor at Eastlake. Oh, you're Grayson's dad. They only know me through that expression, right? Or they would more likely be like, oh, you're Grayson's dad? Oh, God. <sighs> Buckle up, dude. Hope you saved enough money for counsel. Anyways, all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, so the different ways of knowing these things, right? So here... Here's then the third leg to this answer. All right, coming back to the very beginning, if that's true about us, if we exist as a rock, but we also exist as a kiss, which is a 
culmination of several different things coming together that make us who we are, then when we say, when, when we look at it and say, what we need is an encounter with a God who is God, right? The problem is he's hard to pin down. He keeps showing up in history. Uh, and yet when we ask him to explain yourself, explain yourself, he keeps saying, I am what I am. I'll be what I will be. You have to look at my actions. to kind of So then what do we go with? What we go with, he, when he showed up again in the New Testament, when he showed up again in the person of Jesus, Jesus took on the fullness of humanity. He made himself human. He embraced creation. He said, this is good. Here's what we know. He said, I love the world so much that I gave my son to die for this. So he, here's what we, it, it, from the indescribability of what we think we know about God, here's what we actually know about God. He really loves his creation, he loves his creation so much that he showed up in the person to kind of save it and redeem it and make it right again. And if he shows up in that way, then perhaps one of the ways that we can connect and encounter a God who is God is by loving his creation, the thing that he died for and seems seemingly cares about the most. One of the best ways that you can show me that you appreciate me, love me, whatever, is by taking care and loving my kids and my wife, taking care of the things that I care about most in life. You treat them poorly and then you come to me and be like, but we're cool, right? And yet you like, speak ill of my wife or talk about, it would be so weird for you to be like, ah, that whatever over there, but like, we're fine. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. You can care about me one of the ways that you can care about me best is care about the things that I care about the most. What we know about God is he shows up, he, redeem, he wants to redeem creation. He loves creation. He made himself part of creation. So then our connection with that, our connection with a God who loves is a, is a surefire way for us to be able to begin to go, I don't know much. You exist beyond my levels of comprehension, but <clears throat> here's what I do know. You love your creation, so I'm gonna do my best to be in love with that as well, to show love, to live this out in this way, to know or encounter this living God made known in Jesus is to know him in the flesh of humanity, which is why I think Jesus, in talking with Simon Peter, remember Simon Peter at the point of Jesus being arrested and put on trial, betrays that he, Jesus, he denies that he even, even knows him. And then afterward, Jesus shows up on a beach, they have breakfast together and he begins to ask him a few questions. He says, Simon Peter, do you, do you love me? And, and Peter's like, of course, you know that I do. I, you, you know that I do, absolutely. I'm so sorry for kind of the, the history and whatever, but of, of course I do. And then he asks him again, do you, do you love me? Yes, I do. Uh, you know that I do. Like, are you living with this insecurity that I don't love you? I love you, right? And he asks him a third time. And it's almost like a light bulb goes on in his mind. He goes, I denied knowing him three times specifically right before he died. Now he's asking me three times if I love him. Like it clicks on for him He's taking this situation that was bad, reversing it and making it good. He's saying, it's okay that you did those things. Do you love me? I, of course that I love you. And Jesus' response in that is this, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Peter, who would go on to be the pastor of like the church, the CEO of the early church, right? Who, who would take kind of his personality, which was oftentimes uh, 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 like shy and temperamental and kind of all over the place, who would then go on to like lead this thing and begin the expansion of the story of the, in the way of Jesus, inviting people to live like he did, is encouraged and said, feed my sheep. If you love me, care about who I care about. Feed my sheep. The people that I love, you begin to love them. That's what I want from you. And right after this, by the way, right after he asked Peter for a third time, Peter, do you love me? If so, feed my sheep. Then he says, then he begins, to, he predicts Peter's own death in this. Listen, you're gonna be bound up. You're gonna, you're, you're gonna be in a spot in life where you're not, gonna, you're not gonna wanna go there, but you're gonna be taken there. 
and you're gonna die for what you believe, right? And predicting the fact that Peter would then go on to be uh, crucified in Rome and crucified upside down as church history would have it. But basically this is gonna be costly for you. If you're gonna go and love them in this way, if you're gonna love the world in this way, it is not gonna be easy to do this. It is going to cost you something. Because there's one side of things that says, oh, uh, love the world, love, love people. That's really easy for us. Like tonight, uh, right after this service today, I'm gonna get in uh, our family car and we got a trailer, like a little pull behind thing on the back and we're heading up to go camping at Farragut State Park. Tonight, we're gonna sit around a campfire with people that we love, right? My sisters, uh, my sister-in-law, uh, Sam and Becky from this church, a couple other families from this church, Aubrey and Chris, and we're gonna sit around a campfire and we're gonna have a great community time together. And we're gonna like roast s'mores and we're gonna share stories. And there's a, a sense in which I could walk away from that being like, I love people. People like, this is great. We are loving people. We are doing life with people. Listen, that's the easy one. I love them because they feed my kids s'mores and they watch them while I go and do it. You know, I'm like we scratch it. Like we have a good time. That's, that's fine. But what, Paul, what Peter is being told right here is that kind of community is easy. It's not simply connection with people. It's loving the world. And sometimes loving the world is going to be costly. And Peter, in this scenario, it's going to cost you your life. But if you want to love me and reflect my love, then feed my sheep. Be the type of person who loves my creation because I made myself known to you through embodying this creation. And that's how I want you to see the world. If a church truly wants a relationship with Jesus, it will be found by, having a, and being, by being in a relationship in and with a world, loving the world, not by expending energy to have the world, seeking resources and relevance. Like we don't, we don't, we're not in relations to have, to accumulate. We're in, in this to do life with the world by sharing in life, by finally and completely being in the world. Last series, what we did, we did a Christ and culture series that talked about four different approaches. And I said, um, a, a lot of times I said, you either against the world, for the world, in the world, transcend in the world, that kind of thing. I said, unapologetically, we are a church that uh, is focused on being for the world. Um, this is the way that we interpret it. We, we, we see when Jesus met with his disciples, um, on, the, uh, on the night before he was uh, crucified. And um, he's sharing a meal with them and it's a Passover meal and it's a reverent moment for them. And he breaks the order in which they, they do things. And he, he says, this is my body that's been broken for you. This is my blood that's been shed for you. And this is how people will know that you are my disciples. The way that you love one another, the, the, the way that you take this, the, the way that you take the way that we interact and we love the 12 of us, and that's great. I want you to take this into the world. Show them that this is a way that you can do this thing. You've seen how I've modeled it for you. Peter, you've seen how I, in, in, in like all of the religious structures and all of the ways in which you should have been washing my feet as a teacher, I got down on my knees and washed your feet. And you said, Lord, don't wash my feet. They're stinky, they're dirty, we've been traveling. He said, no, 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 I'm showing you that whatever position and privilege that you have, you lay it down, you get on your knees and you begin to wash the feet of other people. That you do what's costly to them. You, you, what's costly to you for the sake of them. That you live in this way. And then he says this, the world will know that you're my disciples, that you're doing things that way that I taught you when they see you live in this way. Not because they saw your like, you know, <clears throat> bumper sticker on your car or the tag that says East Lake Tri-Cities all over it or your wear love shirts or whatever the case may be. That's not how they know you're my disciples. The way that you live life with and for other people, not taking advantage, not trying to reach and grab and, and, and climb to the top and do whatever it takes to get up there but to live in a selfless sort of way, a way that probably, according to Jesus, at least to Peter, is gonna cost you. 
probably not your life. We're in a unique situation as Americans. Like it's probably not gonna cost you your life. I mean, you might think that because like, you know, money and whatever else. But, um, but it, the reality is it's, it's looking at this going, I'm, I'm not in a relationship to get one up on anybody else. I'm in this to do life with the world because I'm for the world. And Jesus said, people know that they are my disciples by the way that they see you have love for each other. The church is in a position to witness to the world that the strange God of the Bible still indeed acts. He still breaks through the barrier. How, why? By the way that we live. He showed up multiple times, both in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel, both in the New Testament through the person of Jesus. And then Jesus said, you're gonna be my hands and my feet. You're gonna go into the world and I'm gonna continue to break through the barrier of this existence, but I'm gonna do it through people. I'm gonna do it through the church. I'm gonna do it through the way that you live. And that's when people go, normal people don't act like this, man. There's something transcendent about what you're doing. There's something that's bigger than this. It's beyond what I'm used to. This is so much bigger than myself. That's the invitation that we get to be a part of. This is why I'm not afraid of the decline in numbers. This is why, this is why when I look at the data, I think that's fine, whatever. This is just more opportunity for the church to be the church. How great is that? Our target audience is getting bigger. And it's not the underlying need for them is to encounter a God who is God. And so what we get to do is to change the medium in which that works and in which that plays out and be a part of that. And my, my hope, my prayer is that this community, that this church community continues to be that kind of an expression, continues to be that sort of a thing. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri Cities in your favorite app store.